Today, turning into your Bibles, whether it's on your phone or your actual book, uh, will be in Revelation 13. And so this is titled Copycats. And so as you're turning there, right, so I, I looked up a couple things. So according to a 2017 Associated Press article, counterfeit goods cost the U.S. about $600 billion a year. Right? That's a lot of money. This is not just purses or wallets or clothing, though. Uh, that those things cost about twenty to forty billion dollars a year. But it's also software, movies, and trade secrets because they, you know, they can just copy them, print them off for anybody. They can pirate them for you know instead of a DVD costing twenty dollars or thirty dollars, you know, they can sell it for ten or fifteen. They're still making money, and it costs them a dollar to make it, so they don't care. And so that last item alone, the trade secrets alone cost the nation somewhere between 180 and $500 billion. Right, so the trade secrets, right, how you do business, how you make coffee, how you make a special product, whatever it is, people are willing to pay for those, right, those blueprints or those computer codes or whatever they are. They're willing to pay so they can take and maybe make a small change to it, but yet everything else stays the same and somebody else has already done all the hard work. So somebody's just going to, you know, they're going to profit from somebody else's work. So we've probably heard this statement in some form or fashion, but Oscar Wilde said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And that's usually where it stops for people. And that's what we usually hear. That's, but there's another half of that statement that I didn't, I didn't even know about until I looked it up the other day. So imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Because right? that's kind of the key, right? So people who are mediocre, who are average, who maybe they, they want to have a good idea on how to solve a problem, but they really can't. You know, they kind of steal it from somebody. And maybe, like I said, they put their name on it, they change colors, they change something else to make it different enough where they're not breaking any laws particularly. But they're still just copying. Right? And so there may be a fine line between learning how to paint like Rembrandt or paint like somebody else, Picasso or somebody like that, right? Oh, I can copy their style because it's just an interesting way to do it versus me painting a picture and then claiming it's a Rembrandt, right? I could say I painted this in the style of Rembrandt or whoever, but I can't pass it off to you guys and say, hey, I found this in my attic. It's probably worth a couple billion dollars and you should pay me for it, Right? And so it's easy to copy something that sells or works because that gets, it's the name recognition, right? It has a reputation of quality, right? Oh, it's a coach purse, whatever. Oh, these are, you know, whatever, how much they cost, a couple hundred dollars. Well, hey, oh, I found this one from a guy's trunk and it's only 50 bucks. It's got to be real. It's got to be a good deal. It's just really, he just found it off a truck, you know, kind of thing. Right, But we have this, and so the profit for these people is far greater, and most people can't tell the difference anyway between the real thing and a knockoff. Right, Unless you're, unless you're really schooled in this whole process, you're going to say, yeah, it's close enough. You know, it may say, you know, coach instead of coach or something like that, instead of, or Folex instead of Rolex. You know, you can buy the Folexes for five bucks. You know, the fake Rolexes. But, and, and people don't know because if you say, hey, oh, yeah, look at my watch. Oh, that's a fancy watch. And from over here, from here, oh, it looks real. It's, it's super nice. But you look at it and, it, it, you know, everything's off. The gold's wearing off on the back, things like that. Because you know it's fake. 
So the same thing happens with Satan and his, what we're going to see here, the unholy trinity that we're going to see here today, where he has no original thoughts to himself or for himself. Everything he does has to be copied from God because he is a creation, he's a creature, so he cannot just make things the way he wants them. He can only kind of see what he saw God do and then twist it to fit his own purposes. And so we see this, how Satan copies with what will become the Antichrist, what will become the false prophet. And so this is probably the most well-known piece of the Bible, perhaps, because this is, you know, the end times is really brought about or, or signified by the, by the Antichrist coming into power. All right, so I'll be right up front. We don't know who it is, but he hasn't shown up yet. There may be smaller ones here and there. There, there are other false prophets, but the Antichrist and the false prophet have not shown up yet, right? So kind of get that out of the way for now. So we have a few guesses of maybe who they may be referring to as well, but we'll, we'll cover that in a few minutes. But we're going to look at Revelation 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And that way it'll kind of set the stage for it all. And so John says, the dragon stood, this is, the, this is chapter 12, verse 18, and we'll kind of read that as well. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This is 13.1. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its heads, or on its horns, excuse me, were ten crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme His name and His dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them, and it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Right. So more bad news, it seems like. More, more uh, you know, literally devilry, I guess, if you want to call it that. Right. And so here's the main idea, though, that we need to take away from this. Because we can spend days and years and centuries talking about who the Antichrist may or may not be and everything else. But here's what we need to know. God is the only true God. Everything else is just an imitation. And if you look, guys, look right down Isaiah 44, especially verses 6 and 7. That's kind of where that comes from. And there's other places in the Bible. We're going to read a few of them from some of the Psalms that really speak to the fact that God is the one true God. He's the only God there is. And so the first part of this, the outline, we only have two points for today, is that the unholy trinity is completed. And that'll be the bulk of the chapter Then we have. We're going to get into a little bit of the first couple of verses of chapter 14 as well, because we're going to look at the beast and the lamb as well. Right? We're going to compare and contrast those things. So last week we saw, in chapter 12, we saw Satan being thrown to the earth from heaven because he opposed God. Right? He wanted to take over. He wanted to fight them. So the archangel Michael came with his army. They fought. They threw out Satan. But then we're seeing another, we, we see another scene. That the dragon, who is Satan, stood on the sand of the sea. 
Then all of a sudden we see a beast coming out of the sea. And when eventually, in verse 11, we're going to see the other beast, the second beast, right? And so we see these two beasts. One comes from the land, one comes from the sea. So the sea is like the ancient Leviathan. And so the one coming from the land is like the behemoth. And so the, both of those are mentioned in Job. And so we even think that those two are, those beasts are mentioned right there. They're foretelling the fact that these are where these beasts are coming from for, for these things. So we look out at this body of water and we see the dragon is standing there. And all of a sudden we see this beast coming out of the sea. And he describes it with crowns and horns and different parts of the animals. And so this first beast is described similar to the description in Daniel 7. Except this time, in Daniel 7, there were four separate beasts. He saw a leopard, a bear, an eagle, and a lion. But this time, John takes them and he wraps all of them because those four beasts from Daniel represented four distinct empires. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now, all of a sudden, he may be, John may be explaining this new beast as something that is worse than any of the four empires that have been. Right, so this is something much bigger, much more terrible than all of those four empires kind of combined. And so that he's using this imagery that people were familiar with from the Old Testament to say, look, you guys have known these other four empires. We know through history what they've done. You know, we're living in the Roman Empire at this time, right? So they're in the first century. They're living under Roman rule. And they knew how bad or good it was depending on who was in charge and what, everything that was happening. But he's saying, look, it's going to get worse. This person, this Antichrist, who we know who he is, the Antichrist, he is going to be worse. And so he may embody the worst of all of them. And so he is the Antichrist, just like it sounds like he is in direct contrast to Jesus. But again, we're going to see things that he kind of mimics or copies Jesus. And it's so much, in fact, that he, it says he had a mortal wound, but then it was healed. Right? One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, so if he has seven heads, you kind of probably see one of the heads maybe lolling like this, like it's actually, he's dead. But all of a sudden, we see that the head has been healed and he's fine again. Because this mimics the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he wants to show, Satan wants to show, just like a purse, like, look, you can't tell the difference too much, right? This, which one's real, which one's fake? You know, and most people, you put two of them together, unless they know what they're looking for, they're not going to be able to tell. Or do you know who the people do? Because they go right to the right place, and they look at something that most of us would probably pass over. I asked Veronica, I said, how do you tell if Dooney and Bork purses are real or not? And she says, oh, you just unzip it and look at the tag or whatever it is, and like, there it is. And so you can tell. So that's the thing where if you don't know what you're looking at, you say, oh, this must be the same guy as Jesus, or he must be just like Jesus, so it's okay to follow him. And so the people worship, the people of the earth worship the second beast, and Satan had given him power, and it seems that he is so worshipped, the people caught out who is like the beast and who can fight against it. Right, and this is a direct uh, slap in the face or blasphemous references to several scripture passages. Because in Psalm 113, verses 4 through 7, it says, The Lord is exalted above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. So who is like our God? Right, notice the, the similarity in language, right? Who is like our God? Who is like the beast? 
they're saying no one can compare these two. So they're just worshiping the beast like he's our guy. He's the best team. He's the best guy. So we see this mockery going on, this copying. Isaiah 44, 7, God says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From that the time I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Because you see, even the Antichrist, he had to be given power and authority from Satan. He doesn't have his own authority and power, unlike Jesus, who has full authority. Jesus has full authority because he is God. The Antichrist is just a beast who's working for Satan. So he is not God. He doesn't have any other power other than what was being given to him by Satan. Jesus had full power to change things molecularly, right? Water into wine, raise people from the dead. All these all the miracles that he performed, making you know two fishes and some loaves in defeating five thousand and four thousand people, and you know, probably more than that, really, when you think about all the people who were there, perhaps. So the Antichrist is just working, he's almost a puppet for Satan. But people give over to him and say, oh, let's worship him. Who? He's the greatest guy I've ever seen. And so in verse 5, though, in chapter 13, verse 5, we see that the beast was given a mouth and he was uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And so blasphemy is the unpardonable sin. Right? It, is, it is one of the most serious, one commentator says, it is one of the most serious of all spiritual iniquities in the Old Testament because it denies the sovereignty of the Creator. Right, when you're saying, oh, that can't be because of God, right? You're denying the sovereignty of the Creator when you say that things just happen, things are doing whatever. The concept of blasphemy is more than failure to believe in God and endorse His programs in ways. It says it is an, it is an active repugnance and open, or open opposition to the Creator God. When you are saying, I'm God, I can do just, just as many things as God does, you are saying, I'm the Creator, I can make things... And yet, well, then let's miracle up a tree here. Right? Let's make something happen that you can do that only God would be able to do. And of course, people can't. So, of course, this is exactly the opposite of how the Son spoke with the Father. Jesus understood his role in the plan, he also understood who God was. So, John 14 28, Jesus says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Right, so here we see Jesus. Every time Jesus speaks about the Father, He is doing it in an honoring way. He's not blaspheming God. He's not putting Him down and saying, oh, God sent me down here to save you guys. Because that's probably how most of us would be. Right, if you watch Saving Private Ryan, that's kind of their whole thing. Like, Why do we got to traipse all the way from, from Normandy all the way into Belgium or Germany, wherever they were going, deeper into France to go save this one person. Right? And they kind of complain the whole way. Like, why us? Why do we got to do it? Da, 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 da. But he said, no, I'm here to save you. This is my job. And then in John 8, verses 49 and 50, when the Jews are confronting Jesus, they have a lengthy conversation. The Jews responded to him and said, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? So they're calling him demon-possessed and also you're not a full Jew which is kind of a big, huge slam for them, actually. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. 
See, Jesus came to die for your sins because He is truthful and He is the living Word of God. Right? He is God incarnate. He is the only one that can atone for your sins. And so at best, the first beast only mimics Christ. And so the second beast here, starting in chapter 11, of verse, or chapter 13, verse 11, he's going to mimic the Holy Spirit because he is the false prophet. And so we're introduced to this second beast, the, the Leviathan, and he has two horns like a lamb. But John says, but it spoke like a dragon. Right, a so dragons are tricky. They like riddles. And you know, probably in, in history, if you read things about dragons, they're very, they're very wily. Right? The serpent, the dragon, they're the same synonyms essentially for us in the Bible. Right? The serpent used words to trick Eve essentially into thinking that taking the fruit was okay. Right? Because they're wily. They're, they want to trick you in, into thinking things are okay. And so this explanation of this, because, well, that's weird. How did he, he look like a lamb? And how did he speak like a dragon? So this creature's deceptively mild appearance is belayed by its speech, which is like that of a dangerous dragon. Right? The contrast between appearance and reality is, is, is like that in, saying, in the saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. From Matthew 7.15. And so here we see that the land beast speaks for the dragon by promoting idolatry because, right, we, we've all seen people who look super nice and all of a sudden they turn on you and they want to, they tear you to shreds or they talk behind your back, whatever it is, because they are false, they're fake. And so verse 12, though, is perhaps to me, the mo at least to me, is the most disturbing portion and the most telling of Satan's mode of rule, the second beast using the power from Satan makes or forces people to worship him. And so here we have the political and religious power, they're joined together, and you are forced to take part in both. Right? He forces them to do it. Right? So in first century Rome, when this is being written, there was a blending of religion and politics. So depending on the ruler, people were forced to call the Caesar Lord. And so certain parts of the early church history, one of the hot topics was whether to allow Christians who actually acquiesced. So they said, okay, I'm going to give in and I have to call Caesar Lord. Even though we are commanded to only have one God, right? So they, for whatever reason, they were threatened. They were, you know, their families were threatened. Their businesses, whatever it was, they said, fine, Caesar, your Lord, whatever. And there were churches that were like, well... We can't let you back into church because you committed the ultimate sin. You've worshipped other gods. You've you worshipped some other idol. And so we're not going to let you back in. You're, you're no longer a Christian, so go away. Right? So there's a big debate of like, well, they need to do something, you know, repent of their sin, and then we can let them back in. You know, so there was a huge debate about letting people back in or not. But these people, right, the church, the Rome, the Roman government was forcing people's loyalty and fealty, right? They wanted you to swear that you love Caesar above all things and above all else. And so the people who were hearing this were like, well, that's normal. This is what's going on right now. This is, this is how we're living. And so we see other things, right? The people want to force you to acknowledge their authority, their rights, their things that would say, well, yes, I acknowledge that you are over me. And say, ha ha, we won. And we have to resist because we have to know the truth. We have to make sure we understand what's being, what's at stake here, what's going on. 
Because everybody who wants to be right, everybody wants to be their, their, their point made, and they want to be in control of things. And so this coercion, though, this strong arm, it extends to the economy and your place in it. And it says you can only sell or buy goods if you have the mark of the beast. So we see this problem. It's some kind of mark you know, on your hand and your forehead. And this new society will make it essentially impossible to feed your family and make a living. So Christians are going to be cut off or at least forced to make their own way in their own economy. Right? We see, you've seen this all through history, right? And we can say, oh, we're living this right now. Right? Because we have this big, the cancel culture. Well, you said this 15 years ago, and we're probably pretty sure you don't change, so you must believe it still, so we're going to cut you out. So you can't shop here, you can't do this, we're not going to buy from you, all these other things. And we all, each side does it. Well, I don't like you, I'm going to cancel you. I don't like you, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to buy your stuff. I'm not going to do this. And so everybody just gets divided and forced aside to either way. And so the side we need to make sure we are on is God's side. And so however you want to navigate these things is, is, is up to you. But you see, this, a lot of this stuff, this, this forced way of doing things is, is direct contrast of how God operates. If you read the prophets, the prophets never forced anybody into worshiping God. In fact, it seems like they lost people because they said you should worship God. They had to live in caves. They had to run away. They wanted to be killed. They were, people wanted to kill them. You know, Jeremiah, I don't think it had anybody following him at all. Right? They actually left the prophets and went and followed the world. So it was a very thankless job and God even told people ahead of time, you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose family. You're not going to, nobody's going to listen to you actually. But you need to preach my word because I'm telling you to do it. And so the people are free to exercise their free will, but we see, though, yes, there are consequences for your disobedience. But we know there are consequences to disobedience. We see with Ahab when, when Elijah was trying to tell him things, and so there was a drought. There were some other things that happened in the kingdom because they, he didn't want to follow Yahweh or God, you know, God. He wanted to do his own thing and follow other gods. Because, you see, if we're pressed into service, we do not love our Savior, and we have been ripped away from anything we want, and we operate from a place of fear of consequences versus a place of love and say, yes, I want to worship you. I want to follow you. But if we realize God's gift is a, is a grace, it's grace, and we replace our will with His, then we have fully entered into the covenant. And so this transaction is made possible because, one... Your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, right? So that's one thing that we, we hear that, we see that in verse 8. So your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, right? You are predestined to be God's people. God knew you were going to be a person, so what does that mean? Jesus came to die for you if your name is in that book. And so secondly, your name is written in the Lamb's blood. That is the ink your name is written in, in that book. And so we see this powerful image of, wow, God already had a plan for me before the foundation of the world, before they did everything else, before Genesis 1, my name was already in that book. Before Genesis 1, your name was in that book. Whether people know it or not, 
their name may be in that book. And so we see, though, that to get people to come and listen to them, the false prophets were using miracles to lure people into false worship. But Deuteronomy says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonders that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or a dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's Deuteronomy 13, 1-3. Right? It's kind of a test that people say, I'm a prophet. People say, I do this, or a false religion, or a, this is the newest religion. They say, all right, here. Are you of the one true God? And that's all you've got to say. Right? The Mormons come to the door. Well, we have this extra book. Why? I don't need an extra book. Everything I, ha- everything I need is here. Even if it's true, which it isn't, it doesn't matter because it doesn't add anything to it. It's a, giant, it's, a lot of it is copied directly from the Old Testament. So if you look in the Book of Mormon, you can see in there they have references to a lot of the kings, a lot of chronicles. That's all it is. They just took and referenced it and kind of added some stories in there. So they, it's unnecessary, it's an unnecessary level of knowledge that I don't need. Because there's plenty of things in here to learn about that you need to learn that's real. Right? And so this description informs the expectation of the false prophets would arise at the end of the age to deceive people with miracles. And Jesus tells us that in Mark 13. So people were preaching false gospels and performing false miracles. They're the ones who work for Satan. And we have to be on the alert for all these people. They're people that are twisting the gospel, trying to manipulate you or others by making you feel guilty or trying to get you to adhere to very different things than what is in the Bible. If they don't preach a gospel of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, made possible by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, then they are false. In other words, if they're trying to tell you that you are saved by Jesus plus anything, it is false. And again, since Satan is not particularly original, he has to mimic what he already knows and what he's already seen work in the world so far. Well, oh, they're... Oh, they're selling hamburgers for a quarter? I'm going to sell hamburgers for 20 cents. Because they have a lot of business, I'm going to do the same thing. Right? Why make a new logo and a product when I can steal yours and alter it just enough that you either don't know or don't care about the quality or the differences until it's too late? Right again, we kind of go back to that. The original you know, brand name food versus the store, bought, the store brand food. A lot of it's pretty good. Sometimes they're made by the same people, actually, but sometimes it's very, very, very different, right? You have, you know, peanut butter, great peanut butter, whatever kind of your favorite peanut butter, and then the very generic, very generic peanut butter that just says peanut butter on it. Hmm, probably isn't very. It may not be very good, but you don't know until you spend the three or four dollars, whatever it is, to bring it home and put on your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And realize you just made a massive mistake. And you wonder why it was $4 for the Costco tub size of peanut butter. That might be why. Right? Because you get what you pay for in many senses. So Satan has created, or he, he, is, he will create, this is all future. He will create this unholy trinity. Because again, he's just copying what's going on. Anything he can do to disrupt people from worshiping God is a win for him. He doesn't care. 
He can, he's going to force you into doing things. So he doesn't care if you really believe it or not. But as long as you are not focusing on God, he wins. And so he creates a system that, that, that copies the perfect Trinitarian system of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit with Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet. Why? Because we are made to worship him. We are made to worship. But, but what or who we worship is what gets us into trouble. And so we come to the last part of the chapter, verse 18, and into ver, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And we see, again, probably the biggest part of anything of the revelation that comes up is, is the number of the beast. Right, what does it mean? Is it going to be stamped on your head? Is it going to, whatever, what is going to happen with it, right? And so we're going to, we've already compared and contrasted kind of the modes of Satan and God, but, but there's always this lingering question of what this means. Number 666. What is it and who, who does it indicate? Because John says it is a person. And if the slide guy would catch, there we go, thank you. So scholars seem to think that this 666 may refer to the Emperor Nero. So if you use a system called gematria, which is assigning a number value for each letter, because in Greek and Hebrew the letters have a number assignment, so like A is 1, B is 2, that type of thing. So when you write it out, so the squiggles on the far left-hand side that you're looking at, if you're looking at the top of the thing there, right, that is, that is the Nero Caesar, QSR, right? So that's the Latin or the Greek spelling. The other word is the Hebrew spelling. It equals 666, and you can see the letter values there. Right? So N equals 50, R is 200. So if you add them all up, you get 666. So that is one possibility, right? So the Latin form of the, of the name Nero lacks the final N, which is a value of 50. So when you... When you take the 50 out, you get the sum of 616, which is a number that also appears as an alternative to 666 in some manuscripts of the Greek manuscripts. Right, so both of them make sense that it could be a reference to Nero. Could be. Because he does, says, because John does say it's a person. Right, because it is a number of a person. So, and they have other, other things that point to, it's sort of a shorthand to say, oh, this number means it's actually referring to this other person. So if I would do it for my wife, I could say, I love, I don't know what the math is, but I, I love 752, whatever. And that would be the spelling for the letters for Veronica if you take out the vowels. Because I, you take out the vowels also. If they, that's why they're not in there. So therefore, the 666 and 616 both work for Nero's name. But not everybody agrees to this. And there are many other possibilities. One of my commentaries lists out several different things, and it gets kind of crazy. So another theory is that 666 is imperfect because it's not seven. Right? Each of the unholy persons is, is not, is they are imperfect, and so they can only be at a six. They can't make it to seven. Because seven is the number of perfection. So you have three of them, so six for Satan, six for the Antichrist, six for the false prophet, because they're not seven, because God is perfect. God is seven, essentially. But this may be unlikely because in the first century they didn't necessarily look at the number six as, as meaning imperfect or referring to being imperfect. And so there may be another possibility or possible meaning of it, and it speaks to the beginning of chapter 14, and that's why sometimes it's important to ignore the chapter breaks that we have in our Bibles 
because he's just writing things down, and so people go in and break them as we see to kind of help memorization. Right? So that's the bigger reason these numbers are here. But if we take the, the entire context, because we have 666 as the mark of the beast, now we have the lamb and the 144,000 in the very first part of chapter 14. And so these, may, these numbers may be in contrast to each other. And so we have number 666 indicating the people who are marked with the beast, and we have 144,000, the people who are sealed by God. And so one commentator says this. He says, These numbers are juxtaposed in Revelation 13, 18, all the way to 14, 1. So the number 144,000 is 12 squared times 1,000. And it depicts the vast company of the redeemed. Right? We saw that in chapter 7. Right? So we have 12 squared and it's 100 times 1,000 is 144,000. So by way of contrast, the beast number is based on 12 halves, right? So we cut 12 in half, we get 6. The 6s are multiplied by 10 and 100, not by 1,000. And so you get 666. And so the, the impression is that the being marked with the beast 666 is a debased alternative to belonging to the, the lambs 144,000. So it's a little confusing maybe, but basically you are, it's a way to say, look, you are not in, you are not one of the chosen, you are not one of the elect, you are not belonging to the Lamb, so you are half. Because it's the same numbers, you just do different math with it and it changes it. Again, it's math, so people try to assign all these crazy numbers and meanings to it, so it gets very tricky, but the bottom line is you are one or the other. Right, the bottom line, whatever it means, if it indicates a person, if it indicates a grouping, you're either branded or you're sealed. So what does this all mean? Bottom line, Satan will make a mockery of God at every turn. But he is incapable of creating anything, so he uses people like puppets, puppets to blaspheme God and to trick people into believing him and that he is just like God. Because right? I imagine Eve hearing a talking serpent. Well, this must be God. He's pretty powerful. He can, he can talk. That's fine. Makes sense. Satan twisted God's words in the garden. He had, to, he had to be forcibly removed from heaven, whereas Jesus willingly left the throne to live among us and become the Passover lamb to take the sins of the world. Right? He said, hey, I'm going to leave here to go down to heaven, down to earth to take care of this versus Satan tried to take over the throne and he had to be kicked out. Because what happens after Jesus? Jesus returned, he was returned to the throne after his death and resurrection. But he ascended back to his rightful place. And so you see the differences, right? You see the contrast here when you look at the bigger picture. So here's the thing. Satan says, follow me or you will die. Jesus says, follow me and you will live forever. Satan marks his people like branded cattle, but God seals his people to himself. And so here we see the contrast of how Satan operates and how God operates. So when you buy a cheap knockoff or a copycat, you get what you pay for. Sometimes the cheap sunglasses work, sometimes they don't. Right, it may be to impress your friends, or you may like the attention you get when people see that your purse, your watch, or jewelry from afar, but it can't stand the scrutiny of an expert. And so imagine paying $10 million for a painting, 
people are like, I wouldn't pay $5 for a painting. But imagine you had that kind of money, you loved art so much that you would pay $10 million for a painting of a guy. Just a random guy staring at you. But that's, I, I didn't have time to put the picture on here of the painting. But to find out almost a decade later that it was a forgery, after being supposedly vetted by the experts. So this actually happened in real life. The Louvre found, they found a painting, the Louvre checked it out. They said it was authentic and everything else, and so at an auction it sold for $10 million. Roughly 10 years later, they did the, uh, they did the analysis of the paint, and they found that there were materials used that weren't of the period, and it, it contained modern materials, meaning they, you know, they went it, get the Michaels and bought the paint. Imagine this, because you have this thing proudly displayed. Imagine when you bought it. You're probably waiting for this painting, perhaps, waiting and looking for this thing. It's my favorite painting. I want it. I'm waiting for it to come up on auction. And all of a sudden it does, and you're like, I want to buy it. I don't care how much it costs. You proudly display it in your home. You put the lights on, and there it is. You show everybody. And it's a fake. Imagine doing that with your life when you're saying, look at me, I'm, I, I, I'm worshiping something, but you're not worshiping God. And so when you follow the one true God, it doesn't matter who the Antichrist or the false prophet is, because you can identify any false idols that arise. You can, you can point out any false teachers that come up. Because Jesus said there will be many false prophets, because unfortunately, people know religion is a pretty good business to be in most of the time, because you can play on people's fears, their, 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 their wishes, whatever else, and so you can stand to make a lot of money for things. Because if you have just enough truth, people don't know any difference, so, they, so they'll buy it, literally. Right? They'll buy the books, they'll buy the tapes, they'll buy the, the conferences, whatever it is. and So you can go away fat and happy. And you don't care what happens to these people because you don't really care about them. And so that's why we need to know who God is and who He says He is and what is going on. Because you will be able to know who the one true king is and who the copycats are. As you're reading things, you're looking at things, you're hearing the news, especially in the, the world of religion, hopefully you can identify or start to hear things and say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Right? Because there's a lot of people who will tell you mostly true things. And there's a lot of things up for debate, so I'm going to make sure we, we understand that. But there's a lot of things that you can, you can know that, that you're hearing a couple people a few times that uh, you know they're not true. Right? So... No great answers probably for this of who, who the uh, Antichrist is. The, the Reformers, by the way, thought it was the Pope. Uh, Martin Luther was very much convinced the Pope was the Antichrist at the time. Um, you know, Rome is still in play, I'll say that at least, I think. But um, I don't think that Pope was the Antichrist. He may have been a, a, acting in contrast to Christ for sure, but this is to make you smarter, to get us smarter about how to recognize and analyze things. Because knowing the truth is the most important part. So as we, get, you know, as we sing our last few songs today, as we go through our lives and we hear all this noise, especially with the end time stuff, right, we need to make sure that we are able to point things out and help other people along the way as well. Because they may come to you and they have questions. So let's go ahead and stand if you're here and we will sing.